The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes has arrived in IMAX. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Welcome to Talk is Jericho's The Pot of Thunder and Rock and Roll. Happy New Year. Let's see what Duff McKagan got lined up for the very first Duff McKagan joke of the week of 2024. Chris Jericho, Duff McKagan here. Uh, Hope you're doing well. Hope everybody out there is doing well. Listen, uh, a book just fell on my head. Yeah, I only have my shelf to blame. Thank you very much. Goodbye. All right. Starting the year with a laugh from Rock and Roll Hall of Famer Duff McKagan. Wishing Duff and the family a happy 2024. Same to all of you. Lots coming up in the new year, including Chris Jericho's Rocket Wrestling Rager at Sea. Setting sail from Miami on January 26th. We are sold out, and we have a huge lineup. You can go see the AEW lineup that was just announced, including Swerve Strickland, Orange Cassidy, Don Callis, Penta Zero M, and the uh, recently acquired Diona Parazzo here. So much more. Go to ChrisJerichoCruise.com. There's still a few open cabins left. Not many. And then we got Fozzie heading back to the UK in February. Spotlight on the UK tour kicks off February 16th in Newport, Wales. Wraps up February 26th in Northampton, England. Doing our legendary VIP meet and greets at every show. We meet you, take pictures, sign what you want, play a mini set for you, even let you sing if you want. All the ticket information is at FozzyRock.com. We will see you there, and we'll see you right here today on the show starting 2024 with a great guest, documentary filmmaker Steve Debro. He's the guy behind 18th and Grand, the Olympic Auditorium story. Great documentary about the famous venue in Los Angeles that was home to pro wrestling, boxing, and punk rock. Roddy Piper's famous feud with the Guerrero brothers took place at the Olympic. Uh, Steve sat down with Roddy to get a first-hand account of his career before he passed away, his memories of the Olympic. He shares his history of the venue and how Eileen Eaton became the first and only female boxing promoter at the time. She ran the Olympic and really helped develop both boxing and wrestling that uh, performed there. Steve takes us through the boxing history of the Olympic as well, the tragic death of Welsh fighter Johnny Owen, how that marked the end of Eaton's run at the Olympic, and of course, Mamie Van Doren. 90 years old. She looks like she's like 60. She looks amazing. Uh, great, great documentary. Go check it out. It's 18th and Grand, the Olympic, Olympic Auditorium story. One of the most famous venues in pro wrestling and boxing history. And we got Steve Debro, the producer and director, right here, right now on Talk is Jericho. So I um, always uh, enjoy a great documentary, being a documentarian myself. And I just happened to see an independent pro wrestler doing some kind of interview mentioning this documentary. And I went and looked it up. It's 18th and Grand, which is all about the famous Olympic Auditorium. 
And here we are just a few days later via modern technology with Steve Dubrow, who directed it, produced it, edited it. I'm not sure everything about it. Let's get into it, man. What, a, what an interesting documentary about a very famous pro wrestling boxing arena in Los Angeles. How did you get involved with this, Steve? And tell us what the process to, to make this film. Yeah, it, it's a long one. I mean, I grew up in L.A. I watched the Olympic on TV as a kid. It left an indentation in my in my brain and my memories because the wrestling was wild, the roller derby was was wild, and, I, and my dad loved boxing, so we watched watched boxing. But ten years ago, a journalist friend of mine named David Davis showed me the photographs of of Theo Aaron, and Theo Aaron was a house photographer at the Olympic from the mid '60s till the early '80s. And they were just so amazing. They were like these epic images of boxing and wrestling. Um, everyone from Blassie to Andre the Giant to Danny Little Red Lopez and Bobby Chacon and just, you know, a zillion characters. And they were just, uh, they captured my imagination. And then once I started getting into the story of the Olympic Auditorium itself and how it intersected with so many different parts of LA history, it felt like a perfect kind of way to tell an LA story that hadn't been told before. One that sort of, you know, focused on the outsiders and the people who weren't part of Hollywood per se. I mean, it touches upon Hollywood, but it was really about the, both the everyday people who went to the Olympic and the incredible characters who were part of the story of the Olympics. So it just grabbed me and it and I started, you know, shooting people, interviewing people in 2014. Um, I had reached out to Gene LaBelle. If your audience doesn't know Gene, Gene was the first MMA fight is credited to Gene. Gene was a ninth degree judo master. He was um you know, first American to go to Japan and win a judo championship. And he was also the son of Eileen Eaton, the woman who ran the Olympic. He opened a lot of doors for me. And, and that's how it started. It was 50 long form interviews of boxers, wrestlers, um, skaters, musicians, and historians and fans later. Um, having to put this whole thing into a coherent package was a real challenge, but we did. It. And I'm very, proud of the film and happy you found it well and it's one of those things too it seems like you made this over um over a long period of time because you've got interviews with people that aren't with us anymore of course more specifically for me from a personal standpoint is seeing a roddy piper on there who was uh, huge when it comes to the history of the olympic auditorium so how long did it take for you to film all of this to finally put it out well we started shooting in 2014 and we finished shooting in 2020 so six years and the Piper interview was very fortuitous. I mean, Gene was extremely close. Gene LaBelle was extremely close with Roddy. And when Roddy came to LA, he trained uh, at Gene's dojo. You know, Roddy had a really tough life and didn't really have many father figures. And if there was anyone who was a father figure to Roddy, it was Gene. We did the interview about two and a half months before he died. It was one of the most memorable experiences of my life in that Roddy was 
annoyed at my line of questioning and he turned the camera on me and <laughs> it, I, I was rotting. I was incredible. And I was so not it being one of the first interviews that I did in the process to, to take on Roddy, which wasn't my, my thought to take on Roddy, but it was certainly his thought to teach me a lesson, which was, which was really uncomfortable. <laughs> but then, you know, then we came to an understanding and then it, and then he really opened up, but he wasn't pleased with me in the beginning and made it, made it clear to me. But it was, you know, it made for an incredible interview in the end. And I was really honored to meet him and, and get a chance to see that brilliant mind at work. Why was he so annoyed at you at first? You know, I had interviewed, I think before I'd interviewed Roddy, I'd interviewed like the Destroyer, for example, who's another incredible wrestler. Right. <laughs> he was openly using terms like babyface and heel and sort of insider terms. And so I had started to use insider terms in my interview. You know, Roddy was all about protecting the business. And he felt like I hadn't earned the right to start talking about those kinds of terms. So when I was talking about the entertainment side of the business, he really wanted me to respect him as wrestling first. Mm -hmm. He didn't think I was doing that. Mm -hmm. And so he wanted for me to understand that. And so he started asking, so what makes a, what makes a professional wrestler? What makes a successful? And I was like, well, he needs to, you know, someone needs to really work hard. And, you know, like I was giving him, I guess what he considered kind of generic answers because I honestly didn't know what he was looking for. Mm -hmm. And he was just like, no, really. Like he was drilling down what makes professional wrestling. And he wouldn't let me go. No, he let me turn the camera on you. He made them turn the camera on me and I'm sweating <laughs> and I'm fumbling and I'm trying and I am failing badly. And then he bails me out and explains to me what, in his mind, a professional wrestler is, mm. which isn't in the movie, but I have all that. I've been working on a, a side Piper project based on that because it just is such a spectacularly interesting uh, look inside the mind of a you know someone I considered kind of a genius. And like the mind of Piper, the sharpness, the the wit, for someone who never went to school, who was like a homeless kid, mm. whatever, I worked with a lot of, I was in the music business for a long time, and I worked with some really smart, brilliant people like George Carlin, and I considered... Piper's brain to be on that same level of hmm. just someone who was sparkly sharp, who understood, just very smart, really brilliant, how he understood wrestling, how he understood character development, how he understood the world. And and so it was just, it was really kind of a magical thing. So it was really, yeah, that was a great, uncomfortable thing. Well, let's talk about about why you wanted to, to interview Roddy in the first place. Let's just jump right into... The significance of Roddy Piper to the Olympic and the significance of the Olympic to pro wrestling, amongst many other things. But let's just jump into that aspect of it. Well, I mean, Piper came to L.A. and was a babyface. Mm -hmm. 
if I dare use those terms. It's okay. I'm not going to turn the camera on you. It's okay. <laughs> you know, a lot of people know his story, but he came from Canada and ended up in LA and made a few little diversions into the US, but ended up in the LA territory. When he first came here, he was a baby face. Uh, Leo Garibaldi, who was the matchmaker at the Olympic, said, we want to turn him heel here in L.A. Mm-hmm. And Mike LaBelle, who was the the promoter, said, no, like, that's crazy. No, we're not going to do that. And apparently Garibaldi took him to San Diego. They turned him heel in San Diego and then brought him back to L.A. And, of course, he found his his natural spot. It was perfect timing. The LA territory was really struggling. Um, at that time, they changed. Jules Strongbow had been the promoter for decades and he had left and they really had lost their, a lot of their audience. And it was kind of, this is the late, mid to late seventies. It was kind of, you know, on its last legs. And he came in and was the perfect foil for Chavo Guerrero, mm-hmm. who was the baby face in LA, you know, succession of of heels had come in and worked with him, Paul the Butcher Vachon and others, but Piper really, really knew how to enrage a crowd and was fearless. And, you know, he was young, he was dynamic and he was fearless. And he really, really, in the, the bagpipe gimmick, he played it for all it's worth. He infuriated the Mexican, Mexican American fans. You know, as he says in the film, it was the first time we're he had a microphone where he put a microphone in a, his hand and where he got a chance to be a star. And then, you know, basically the rest is history. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes has arrived in IMAX. What a day! This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. It's done in my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. When you're talking about the Olympic, it was a place where they had weekly wrestling shows. That was kind of the the arena for um, local Los Angeles wrestling, right? Well, not just local, but it was, you know, it was a weekly wrestling it opened in 1925. Let's start at the beginning. It opened in 1925. It was the largest venue in the Western United States. It was 10,000 seats. So it was not a small arena. And okay, gotcha. it, you know, over the years, you know, from the 1920s and 30s, you know, Jim Londos and going back to, you know, to some of the great wrestlers of all time, you know, Freddie Blassie was the king of the territory in the 60s and 70s. Andre the Giant wrestled there. So it was a place and was also a place where a lot of the wrestlers going to Japan would stop in LA and a lot of Mexican wrestlers came through Los Angeles and Mexican American like Mil Mascaras, for example. And right. You know, even El Santo and, and Black Shadow have a nineteen fifty nine ticket sub. So it was a very important wrestling venue for decades and certainly one of the most important certainly on the West Coast. You know, Piper Piper was part of a long tradition of wrestling heels, you know, going Gorgeous George, including was the Toast of the Coast, who really came out of L.A., who helped keep the Olympic going and who 
made their mark in LA. Piper connected with Ali. If you read Piper's autobiography, Ali gave him a bump in the ring early on and really helped, helped his career along. So he intersected with the whole Hollywood crowd while he was here too. So it was an important part for him and it was important for, for the Olympics. Just to finish up uh, with Roddy's story, tell the tale about when um, he was feuding with Chavo Guerrero and how he was going to play a homage because there was a lot of uh, Mexican people in the audience and he was going to play something for them on the bagpipe to uh, clear the air, so shall we say. Yes. I mean, you know, Piper had been tormenting the fans and tormenting Chavo and the whole Guerrero family. I mean, the Guerreros, from Gory Guerrero, the, the patriarch of the clan, to Hector, Eddie, Mondo. Eddie was just getting started. He was really young. I'm not sure if he wrestled at the Olympic or not. Maybe he did. But, but his family, the Guerrero family, is a cornerstone of, yeah. The Guerrero family was like of the business and, and all. And so, and Chavo was the baby face in town and he had been driving him crazy and so he decided he was going to come out and make amends with the crowd by playing uh, the mexican national anthem on the bagpipes to the crowd comes out takes his time and he plays like a garacha on the bagpipes <laughs> causing absolute mayhem you know that was emblematic of piper and emblematic of the kind of heat he drew at the Olympic and, and, and then used as a template. Like this was his training ground to really like, okay, I can push it this far. Okay, great. So LA was very important for, for Piper. And when you're talking about, about Mike LaBelle and Gene LaBelle, obviously famous shooters and, and, you know, the, the stuntmen in LA and, and involved in the wrestling business. But the thing that I found really interesting before we kind of delve into them is, is that their mother, like you said, Eileen Eaton was, the first and only female boxing promoter in the 30s or 40s and operating out of the Olympic Auditorium. Kind of tell us a little bit about her story. How did she even become a boxing promoter in like, I think I'm saying 30s, 40s, 50s, you can tell the exact date. But back then, women were not allowed to be doing those types of things. Yeah, I mean, Eileen was sort of one of one, really. It was, it was quite an amazing tale. Eileen was a divorcee, a mother of two, Jean and, and Mike, in the late 30s. She was, she was a gifted, smart person. After getting divorced, ended up uh, working for the LA Athletic Club, which the LA Athletic Club was very, was downtown LA. It was uh, where the movie stars trained and hung out and a lot of Olympic athletes. So it was a very prestigious place. She started working for a guy named Frank Garbutt. Frank Garbett was the head of the LA Athletic Club. The Olympic, which had opened in the in the mid twenties, was successful in a way, but it was kind of a white elephant in that you know it's a ten thousand seat venue. It was losing money, and a series of promoters had held the master lease on it. Yeah, I don't know if they were either stealing money or whether it was just failing at what they were doing, but there was a lot of corruption. LA was a very corrupt town back in those days. Some might argue it still is. <laughs> she had impressed Garbett by work she did working for him, doing some marketing and promotion. And he said, he asked her to go down and check out the, the books at the Olympic. She told them, you know, a point blank there, 
they're stealing you blind is the words that I was told. And he said, well, uh, Garvin told her to go down and, and run it. And she'd never seen a fight before. She was, but she had a business acumen and she was put in charge of the being the general manager. And they put her with a boxing, you know, they had a boxing matchmaker, uh, and a boxing promoter and a wrestling matchmaker. Um, but she was running business and she was very clever and smart. She recognized talent. It took a minute for her to turn the, the business around, but she did. She was tough as nails. She, she kind of was behind the scenes for many years in that her husband, Callie, was the face promoter, but Eileen was really doing all the work. Cal, by all accounts, was a terrible alcoholic. Um, who spent most of his time on the golf course while Eileen was, was <laughs> there every night counting <laughs> the money, counting the, the cards and learning the business. And she learned both boxing and wrestling and she knew how to develop talent. You know, certainly had a hand in, in developing Gorgeous George or refining Gorgeous George's talent in, in wrestling. Boxing was her true love, but she was involved in the whole business. And she basically created and started in 1941 and was there until around 1980. So almost four decades of running and, and making successful a building that before her was never really successful and after her was it, it struggled. So she was the glue. She, mm, yeah. it, it was her life. She absolutely devoted herself to the place and to the success of the Olympic Auditorium. And then you know, and she had her son, Mike, ended up running wrestling. And Jean was, Jean was sort of her muscle. Riots were an interesting, you know, looking out throughout history, you know, some people I knew when in making the movie, I put, you know, punk rock was part of it. And metal was part of the Olympic story at the end in the 80s. And I was like, how am I going to do this? Because some people are going to say, you know, how does that really fit in the Olympic auditorium history? I was like, there were riots and the place was violent as hell from the time it was open. I have right. stories from the twenties, thirties, forties, fifties, every decade, there were riots at the Olympic auditorium. And so punk rock fit right in. Punk rock was just another part <laughs> of the violent entertainment palace that was the Olympic. And I, I like it too, because, you know, it's really interesting. It's almost like a uh, history lesson about the, about Los Angeles and how kind of small it was when the Olympics started coming into prominence and how, like you mentioned, the Olympic is one of the the cornerstones that was there to help make LA bigger, leading it into being the, the metropolis that it is today or being, you know, being one of the components of that, shall we say. That was sort of my, the, the hardest thing in editing the film was I, I really wanted to kind of, there were different choices that I had. I could make it about, Eileen and, and make it like a bio doc of which in some ways it is, but in, in a lot of ways, I felt like that would be selling short the performers and the sports themselves. And then there was the story of how it fit into Los Angeles. And I mean, typically speaking, the LA story really is told often from the point of view of the, of the movie business, you know, that it's a movie town and that's what made LA or or the Chinatown version of, of LA mm -hmm. and the kind of film noir thing. And it, and it, and it is all that, but LA is an interesting, wild, very diverse, very conflicted city. 
it doesn't have a center in many ways. Downtown was at one point the center, but really it's a series of, of neighborhoods that spread out right. endlessly. And so I felt like, you know, the Olympic was an interesting unifying force in the city in that it sat right in the middle and it drew people from all over. And it was a place where Mexican, Mexican American, white people, uh, black people, you know, and Asian folk all came together and could, could unify in this place. And I, I thought also that that was an interesting way to kind of do something a little bit positive in this crazy world that, you know, here was a place where people could kind of come and get along. People, different kind of people could, could come together. You know, so much of this moment in time is about division. And I felt like here's a story where actually it's a place where people could come together. And that was, that also felt good to me on another level. So all of those things to me, you know, were the, the challenge in, in sort of bringing all of this together in a way that, that felt it was both the story of the city, uh, the story of this remarkable woman and the story of all of the, you know, the great characters and the, and the, the athletes who, who came through the Olympics. You know, that was, that, that's part of what took so long in, in this process was getting it right. I wasn't gonna let it be lame. <laughs> you know, right. it was my, my first film. And if I never made another film, I wanted to make sure that I did this justice. And I also did justice to people who gave me their time to the stories. I mean, it was also like you, you, you mentioned before that a lot of people have died since this film, since I started shooting it. And I knew that going in, that if I didn't get this story now, that this story couldn't be told properly, at least in the first person. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes has arrived in IMAX. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is time. my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Being in the wrestling business, I never went to the Olympic Auditorium. I, I didn't get a chance to see it before it was shut down but you talk about piper versus chavo guerrero that's one of the most famous feuds in pro wrestling history that happened at the olympic chavo's not with us anymore and roddy was had you not been able to capture roddy no one's telling that tale from from the you know in-person perspective yeah and and that was you know that was really gratif gratifying it was really i knew that time was running short i mean i i certainly didn't expect piper to be one of the people that went because he was one of the younger people who passed away. I, I certainly yeah. didn't think that that was going to be, you know, I think his last major interview that he ever did, you know, we sat down for over an hour and I could tell he was in a lot of pain. That was clear to me when he came in, but I looked at it as a chance. You know, I, I think history has a lot to teach us, but I also knew that this was a, a film that it was pop culture so I wanted it to be dynamic and very music driven. We've got great music in the film from like Queens of the Stone Age to right. Shiggy Otis to War to all sorts of great music that was all sort of 
LA related or loosely related in some way to, to the Olympic. It just felt like this was a, a kind of LA, a mini LA epic. Yeah. An LA story, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. But, but that was universal enough because it, every major city had an arena like the Olympic, maybe not as big as the Olympic, but you know, if you go through most major cities, in North America, there was a version of the Olympic. You well know about the territory system of, of wrestling and how that worked back in the day. And, you know, there were different territories. And so I thought that people outside of LA, I thought if I could make it as real and honest to LA, people outside, LA people, of course, would get it, but the people outside LA would recognize aspects of it in their own town whether you're talking about Toronto or you're talking about Montreal or you're talking about New York, or you're talking about Chicago, Detroit, you know, the Southeast, Dallas, all had, you know, vibrant wrestling scenes and club scenes around those areas and, and stars that came out of those territories. And, and so it felt to me like anyone could enjoy this movie. That was the design of it was not to make it, niche it was to make it true and then i felt like truth and that sort of authenticity would come through to anyone who saw it like you you know you saw it and didn't wrestle in la but but mm-hmm. recognize some of the people you know like the movie and that's that validates to me at least i hope it validates the thought that i did something right in how i approached it Let's talk about um, one of the uh, subjects, one of the, the people they interviewed. I'm talking about Mamie Van Doren. I was like, at first when I saw her, I was thinking, well, that can't be Mamie Van Doren because she's way too young. Like this lady is in her 90s now. She looked like she's like 60 years old. Like she comes in there looking like a bombshell. But this is a, a Hollywood legend. And one of those things, like I didn't even realize she was still alive. But you see her and it's like, oh, my gosh, like. Like talk about Mamie Van Doren and and even just what she's doing in the in the movie and 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 her personality and her overall presence. That was, uh, and so there were certain gets that right. people that we got. Obviously, Piper being one of them, but Mamie Van Doren. I was so happy that I was able to interview her, and it's one of the gems of the interviews. Again, like all the outtakes that I have and the other stuff that is just it's really a great oral history for people who don't know Mamie was one of the three blonde bombshells of the 1950s um it was her Marilyn obviously was on top and um Jane Mansfield Jane Mansfield was yeah. it was the third and and Mamie you know it was a very interesting she came to LA from South Dakota as like a teenager who wanted to get in the movies and her dad was a fight fan and would take this young blonde very attractive woman in her 14 15 years old to the fights and girls didn't go to the fights you know that was just not Mm. like not many women it was a very male thing because you know women were catcalled they were you know whatever it was not a it wasn't necessarily a pleasant thing but maybe rolled with the punches anyway use a metaphor she started going to the fights and she drew a lot of attention and guys like howard hughes discovered her and bob hope discovered her and by discovered i mean both discovered and slept with her 
Hmm. From a very early age, you know, those were different times and those things happened. And Mamie is quite open about her sexuality, um, but also quite interesting. Um, anyway, so she started dating a lot of athletes. She dated and was engaged to Jack Dempsey, believe it or not. Mm, wow. Who was, you know, a legendary former heavyweight champion of the world. He was in his 50s and she was like 16 or something. Wow. Yeah. And she was dating Art Aragon, who was the biggest fighter in LA in the 1950s. Never won the title, but he fought for the title a few times and he was very handsome knew how to work the press at a time when, you know, it was the tabloid era when there were like five newspapers. It was very much, they were a a prototypical tabloid couple in the 1950s that we could recognize today. And, you know, um, whoever Kim Kardashian's dating, um, Mamie was sort of a, a, a template for many that came late, but Mamie wasn't an actress. She was in, you know, a lot of kind of B movies, uh, high school confidential, I think mm-hmm. a lot of other movies in which she was a sex symbol. You know, I, I had wanted to connect with her and, and someone gave me her phone number and I reached out to her husband now. Um, she's in her nineties. I think she was in her late eighties yeah. when we interviewed her. She wore, um, and, and we were able to negotiate to like, it was hard to get her, but we got her to do the interview. And the interview was great because she talks about Art Aragon, about Jack Dempsey, about mobsters that she, who were all around the, the, both the business and sports at that time. Um, she talks about all the athletes she dated. She talks about so much more than, again, what was able to get in the movie, but. I didn't know what to expect when we went to interview her and then she comes out in a mini skirt. <laughs> and one would think most times, hey, a 90-year-old woman in a mini skirt, not wearing panties, yuck. But somehow with Mamie, you're thinking she somehow pulls it off. I, I, it, Dude, it, I'm telling you, like I said, I saw her and I was like, wow, she's a knockout. I didn't think she, when I looked up how old she was, I was thinking there's no way she could be like 65. But then I saw like 92, like, like you said, like she was in her 80s at this point. It's like, my goodness, it was uh, quite, uh, quite impressive. And she, you know, she told me about her Marilyn and like how Marilyn, like, she's like, I knew she, they were, she was friends. She, they were really close. And she was like, I knew she wasn't going to last. I just had this feeling she couldn't, she wasn't going to make it. Right. And same with Jane, you know, she's like, and here I am. And I'm the last one standing. And I, maybe I was never as big as them, but I'm alive and I'm, you know, here to tell the tale. And her book, by the way, if you ever want a great juicy read, her autobiography called Playing the Field is really well worth it. I I highly recommend it. She doesn't, she doesn't, you know, hold anything back. Well, like I said, as soon as I saw her, I was like, I got to get her on Talk is Jericho. (laughs) She's, um, she's, she's fascinating. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes has arrived in IMAX. What a wonderful day! This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. 
bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Well, let's talk a little bit more about the boxing side of things for the Olympic, because I think it's, it's just as much known for the for its boxing legends as it is for the wrestling. Oh, for sure. Boxing was a big part of the Olympic auditorium story. The 40s, guys like Manuel Ortiz, and uh, who was you know world champion for, for almost a decade. Henry Armstrong fought there, who's one of the best fighters of all time was based out of Los Angeles and fought there, you know, I don't know, 30, 40. Those are guys when, when guys fought 200 professional fights, you know, right. Those are, you know, he fought maybe 50 times at the Olympic auditorium and every decade had a star. And, uh, you know, Eileen really, really, I would say that that was her primary focus was, I mean, her primary focus was making the Olympic successful no matter what. Um, but her love was boxing and, you know, many, many stars came through the Olympic or through Olympic promotions. Guys whose name, you know, Roberto Duran fought there. Oscar De La Hoya won his first title there. Um, Julio Cesar Chavez won his first title at the Olympic. People don't recognize or don't remember that. Manny Pacquiao fought at the very end of the Olympics. So it, it's, it's, it has a great, great boxing history. Well, and, and let's talk about some of like the, the riots that happened. You mentioned that, um, Piper started the riot with his La Cucaracha on the bagpipes. Let's talk about some of the other kind of infamous moments in the uh, Olympic uh, history. Well, the, the one we recount in the film, which is considered the biggest, biggest riot in L.A. In, at the Olympic history was in 1964 when a Japanese fighter fought a Mexican fighter named Alacran Torres. Uh, the scorpion, um, and he was very popular and it was a very close fight. And the fight went to the Japanese fighter and the Mexican fans were not happy. We'll just put it that way. And what was also interesting was I was able to get so many people who were at that fight and interview them from this was 1964. And yeah, so that was a really interesting thing. I had the bird's eye on that. So many people were able to kind of tell from their perspective what they saw, which was setting seats on fire, throwing the, the bolted-in chairs off the balcony, people punching each other out, just tearing the place apart, literally knocking over the signs that were used to line the edge of the... You know, it was it was a wild, wild, wild fight. No one got killed, but it, was, uh, it made local news, and I was very happy to find that um, UCLA Film and Television Archive had preserved that footage, which is in the film, which is you quite it, yeah. dynamic. And but yeah, riots were a normal occurrence somehow. <laughs> Let's talk about another interesting moment, very tragic, about the the boxer who who passed away in the auditorium, and just what that kind of meant to the future of uh, of the building. Yeah, that was a, a tragic night at, at the Olympic, and there were a few of them. I mean, that is a sad part of boxing, is that fighters have died along the way. And this was a Welsh fighter who was a European champion um, named Johnny Owen, and his nickname was the Matchstick Man, because he was hmm. 5'10", 5'11", and was a featherweight. So skinny. So skinny, super skinny. He was fighting Lupe Pintor, who was 
really one of the great champions of his era from Mexico City, tough, tough, tough fighter. They uh, they battled. Owen was actually leading the fight. He t- was taking the fight to Pintor, and then Pintor uh, decked him in the in the ninth round, I believe. And I think that caused him to bite his tongue and start to swallow blood. Oh wow! It was the twelfth round, I believe. It was a fifteen round. That's when when fights went fifteen rounds. In the twelfth round, you know, Owen took a shot, went down in a way that you thought this is not looking good and he went into a coma um and never woke up from that coma that was you know it kind of coincided with the departure of eileen eaton she was on her way out um the building had been sold it was a terrible fight and in the film it felt like a natural sort of pivot point in the film Mm -hmm. to sort of you know kind of show that this was um this was the end of a, of a certain time of a certain era of boxing. And, uh, and I don't think it was, I don't think it was ever the same again. There were certainly fights after plenty of fights after that, but that was the, that was came at the heels of the, the end of the Eaton era. It was kind of a turning point in the city too. 1980. It was, it was around the same time when, you know, the punk rock shows started at the Olympics. And uh, the city was sort of in a in a period of change. That was a tough moment. So yeah, and Eileen wasn't like the the manager of the auditorium, but she was so synonymous with it because of all the boxing matches that they had, right? She had the master lease. The LA Athletic Club owned the building until around 1980, and she had the master lease for some almost 40 years. She had had a series of health problems because I mean she smoked like three pack, packs of cigarettes a day. She was a workaholic. And she was also, you know, she's very socially active too. I don't know how she, she burned herself out, honestly. I mean, she was, you know, she had a table at Chasen's, which was the famous celebrity <laughs> restaurant here next to Frank Sinatra's. She was a political power player too. She was very involved like Kennedy and then various politicians. She was very, she was a power broker. Um, but, you know, by the late 70s, she was, she was really, she'd paid the price. She had had a heart attack. She'd, you know, she had a lot of health problems. And so it was, you know, it was time, but they, they kind of unceremoniously pushed her out, which I thought was stupid. The master lease ended up going to the guy who ran roller derby, who hmm. basically ran it, ran it into the ground more or less. Then the LA athletic club sold the building to, um, another group who held it basically until the church bought it in. 2005 but the building is still there let's talk a little bit about roller derby i mean i've been doing talk as jericho for 10 years and i've never really touched on it it was super popular though in the 70s almost akin to wrestling kind of talk about what you found out about about the ups and downs of, of of the roller derby game i'm a curious person you know and and so one of the joys of this whole project has been able to sort of delve into the sports and subcultures of everything because I, I just, I wanted to get it right. I didn't want to, I, I want to go in with a curious mind and be respectful and, and try to understand. Same as I did with wrestling to really understand how the business ran and what was right, you know, and, and, and boxing and roller derby. Roller derby is a very interesting game in that 
it had its origins in the Great Depression. It was one of those things where in the Depression in the 1930s, there were these sort of marathon dances and marathon skates, like where basically people would, would go for prize money. They would try to be the last people standing. Mm-hmm. There was a famous movie called They Shoot Horses, Don't They?, which is about the dances, which would be marathon dances that people would just dance and dance and dance. And people would finally, like after 48 hours, would fall and someone would win whatever because mm-hmm. that was entertainment. Roller Derby started like that. And then it got organized into a game with rules around that time, the late 30s, early 40s. And it became a thing. There were male and female, you know, people think of roller derby now and they think women. But at that time, there were teams made up of men and women. And it was a touring thing. You know, you'd score by passing people. And, you know, there was, there rules where a, a jammer and jammers and blockers and the jammer has to pass through <laughs> all the blockers and get through them and score points. You know, in the sixties and seventies, it really got big. It was very much like wrestling on skates in so far as there was a predetermined winner, but then the moves itself and who did what and how it went, there was a lot of, uh, uh, variation within that. It took a lot to fight on skates, going backwards on a bank track and take bumps and go over the rails and go, you know, it was very, it was violent. I mean, it's a lot of punching. It's a lot Mm -hmm. of like the scoring part of it and the athletic part was certainly a part of it, but it was a lot of, um, you know, it was a lot of violence and people loved it. They got into the storylines. The storylines, you know, were within wrestling they were good guys and bad guys and good girls and good bad girls and and they were the la t-birds who were the local team were sort of the um the dallas cowboys of they were the america's team at that time they were right i guess the white team they called it skating red when you're on the i think that's right i I might be getting this wrong there was there were there were teams that were like the texas outlaws were were bad guys um there were all these teams and they, and they varied depending on who you were going, you're going into whatever home team that you're going into. You're often the red team, the bad team. It was all over the country. And at one point, at its high point in the early seventies, they did a match at Comiskey Park for 50,000 people. Yeah. It was huge. Right? You know, it kind of pooped out in LA. There were, there were two competing factions. There was Roller Derby and Roller Games. LA was Roller Games. The two partners had a falling out. After the Comiskey Park match, when one of them took credit for it and the other one was bad, and then so that one of them just said, "Buy me out," and the storytelling started to wane. Much like wrestling in the late seventies in the promotion, the storytelling started to wane. It was a lot of gimmick matches. Um, there were a lot of gimmicks in roller derby, and they started sending all the best players off to far flung locations because they were in. We're in Hawaii. We're in Australia. We're in, right. we're in Canada. And they, they overexpanded and they didn't give the fans what, what they were deserved. And which was, you know, great skating and storylines you could follow and the stars to match. And it was interesting that you know, boxing was, I think, you know, when, when the Olympic kind of petered out in the late seventies, boxing is still going pretty well, but wrestling and roller derby, which were so, important to 
you know, the Olympic success were really kind of other than Piper and Waning. Chavo that yeah. that, yeah, Piper and Chavo, you know, Rock Rims was one of the historians that helped me out in the wrestling aspect of the story. Just basically it was the, the last gasp of a dying territory was Pop Piper and Chavo. So when Vince came along, you can paint Vince any way you want. I mean, you know, everyone does, but the LA territory was ready to, to fall. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes has arrived in IMAX. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Let's talk about the punk rock uh, element to the Olympic. Why was why was it so synonymous with punk and not pop music or rock music? There was always music in different bits at the Olympic, like, but it wasn't regularly programmed. It wasn't a, a stalwart aspect of the program of the Olympic. The Olympic programming really was boxing. It was known for having the longest running weekly boxing card in America. And uh, boxing, wrestling, and roller derby were really the, the, the main thing. But when the Olympic changed hands in the early 80s, punk rock had gone from being sort of arty and weird to being more hardcore. Right. A promoter named Gary Tovar, who was starting a little company called Golden Voice, which now is Coachella. Oh, wow. Uh, so they became a huge company, but they, he really got his start not his very first gig, but he got, he did a series of hardcore gigs in the early eighties that became legendary. He'd done gigs in different parts of LA, but every time he did it, it turned into a riot, a violent riot. And mm-hmm. so his idea of using the Olympic was this place was indestructible and big. And so usually when the riots happened was when a venue sold out and there were punks on the, street who couldn't get in who would get into it with cops and that was how the riots usually started so the olympic was so big he could bring all the punks inside and as he says in the film um if you're gonna fight you can get a fight with your own people <laughs> so it was a series of hardcore punk and metal gigs too uh, slayer was one of the infamous you know so that was like one of the most violent gigs they ever had at the Olympic <laughs> was the Slayer show. But yeah, it was a series of hardcore shows where he stacked the bills and you know, in places where these bands might sell a thousand tickets in the Bay Area or in New York at the Olympic, they do three, four, five thousand tickets. It was big shows. Yeah, so the Olympic was really they were the biggest biggest shows that these bands played in. It was the biggest shows um, that these, you know, bands had ever played in. And it was catering to a scene that was having a moment where the original scene is, was kind of divided and hardcore took over a certain aspect of the punk scene. And, uh, the Olympic was sort of the perfect place for that. It was like those shows were really legendary. Well, you've got a great documentary here. And I know you even, you know, last few questions, you even had an exhibition regarding the Olympic Auditorium. So what kind of artifacts and, and, and exhibits did you have? 
it's ongoing. It's ongoing until May 11th. That's something I'm extremely proud of. In the making of the documentary, I kept coming across collections and collectors and family members who had artifacts from the Olympic. I felt like this was a, these bits of, you know, some might call them memorabilia, but these old boxing posters, these wrestling outfits, these, you know, roller derby skates and, and outfits, photography, that this was something that deserved to be seen and that there was an audience for it and that it was unique and that I don't know that that anything been done on this scale ever before at an LA County museum. I mean, this is part of the LA County museum system. Uh, it's at a place called La Plaza de Cultura y Artes, which is LA's Mexican, Mexican American and Latino museum. And it's in the oldest part of LA, but in a beautiful building. And they gave us two floors, which is unheard of. They'd never done a, sh- a two floor show of this scope before. So we have everything from the headdress and full ring outfit of Danny Little Red Lopez, who was part Ute Indian. So he wore a headdress and was a world champion for from 1976 to 1980, an icon in boxing, to the Destroyer's complete ring outfit with his mask and his boots and his full gear. We have, there was a great uh, villain called Black Gordman. Yeah. Black Gordman was, yeah, so we have his cape. We've got incredible, we have the Gory Guerrero's long ring robe that has blood on it from the 1940s. Wow. We've got Mondo Guerrero's outfit. We've got just incredible stuff. It's two floors and it's free to the public. So anyone who's either interested in the local area should go see it, but I'd say for a serious wrestling, boxing fan, it's worth a trip to LA because you're just never going to see this stuff done in such a way. It's very, it's very dynamically presented. We're working on a big wrestling event in May. I'll tell you more about when we know more about it, but it's, it's going to be something special that will be a historic, historic event. So that's coming up. We still have many more events. And it's open outside of holidays. It's open Wednesday through Sunday, noon to five. I guess you can put up the information about the museum and all that stuff. Everything can be found on our website um, where we have connections to all that stuff, which is 18th and grand uh, dot com. Well, dude, um, like I said, it's a great documentary. And last question for you. What's your favorite scene? And I'll tell you mine. I, I had the, the the pleasure of having the Destroyer on Talk is Jericho. He was great, told amazing stories. I love the the final scene where you get him to tell the, 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 the telephone number, which, of course, back then started with the city. It was Richmond, you know, whatever it was. Mm-hmm. And he finally got it right at the end. And I was like, yes, that was amazing. It was a great scene and very heartwarming and, and funny and all that sort of in between. What was your favorite scene in the documentary? Yeah, that, I mean the destroyer is really. I mean that's that's great guy. He's hard to top because he was a he is was a great guy, and you know again someone whose career was you know made at the Olympic Auditorium, where it's where he that's where he was he was handed a mask. Right. He thought he he thought he was coming in as a baby face. And he was handed a mask. And said, You're the destroyer now. And he's like, what, what is that? <laughs> and this mask is really uncomfortable. Yeah, it's so weird with the big eyes and the nose and everything. Yeah. And it was wool. So he's like. 
you know, the first mask he got was just so uncomfortable. Anyway, that was that was great. I don't know. I I really love Carlos Palomino, you know, the boxer right. for whom the Olympic meant so much. Where he said it's God, family, and the Olympic Auditorium are his most <laughs> important things in his life, and he was just such a great person and such a uh, heartfelt moment because that's the thing about the movie that I think is is kind of fun is it has humor, it has ridiculousness, it has tragedy, and it has a lot of sort of heart, and that's what I wanted to kind of get across in the film because that reflects the city. Um, and it reflects the people who were part of this documentary. Well, great job, Steve, and great talking to you, man. And uh, 18th and Grand is a documentary. It's available on Amazon. And um, like I said, I want to come see the exhibition. And uh, as, as a wrestling fan, boxing fan, it was a great piece of work. So congratulations on that. Thank you very much, Chris. I really appreciate it. It's great to be with you and uh, a lot of fun talking. Cheers, man. Thanks. Cheers. Thank you. 